0: Thank you, Father, that as we come to you today, we come as those of us who follow you as loved sons and daughters. Thank you, Father, that we declare as we sing our songs that it's your breath in our lungs, that our life is is yours, that you are our Lord, that you are our King, that you are the one who sets our paths and say, walk in this path, and that we say, yes, Lord. And Father, as we look at your word, and as it confronts us, and as it encourages us, it's not all confrontational, but as it encourages us and provokes us to greater life of living, it looks like you, Jesus, I ask you that you would come and empower us. Come and give us power to live this life that you have called us to. In the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. My name is Paul. I'm married to Kate. We have five little kids running around somewhere. One of them looks like Darth Vader this morning. I don't know what... Darth Sidious. Apparently he's in his black cloak in kids' church scaring everybody. Um, That's my boy, proudly. (laughs) Um, we, like I said, we started a series on flourishing. I'd encourage you to go and listen to the one last week. We did some defining. We spoke through how God created us to flourish, how all of creation was made to flourish, how God looked at us and said, this is very good, how God himself blessed us. But then we ended off last week by looking at the life of Jesus, and there's this, this um, dichotomy in the life of Jesus. It's Afrikaans near. Did Jesus flourish? And it's a difficult question to answer because in his life and in his death and in the pain of his death, it doesn't look very much like flourishing, but in what Jesus accomplished and in the the fulfilled potential of Jesus' life, there's no greater flourishing that we could imagine or see. So we begin to see that biblical flourishing and cultural flourishing are somewhat different. And so I'd encourage you to go and listen to that, but today... I want to ask this question, how do we as Christ followers, if you follow Jesus here this morning, how do you navigate the clash of cultural visions? I read that in an article this week. The clash of cultural visions regarding what it means to truly flourish, because they do not coexist very easily. Right, It's obvious that for Christians and the God of the Bible, that flourishing goes much deeper than many of the cultural definitions. It goes much deeper than success or wealth or fame or security. You read a chapter like Hebrews chapter 11. It's a very famous chapter in the Bible. It's all about the men and women of great faith. And we're meant to aspire to them. It's a chapter of example, of saying, this is what you can live your life like, right? And right at the end of Hebrews chapter 11, it gets into this beautiful section in verse 32. And he says, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And then listen to this. This is great. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. Can I have an amen? Ruled with justice. Amen. Received what God had promised them. Amen. This looks like the flourishing life. Right? And it is. But it's not the end of the story. And it continues and it speaks about how their their weakness was turned to strength. And they were strong in battle and put armies to flight. And then it says, but others were tortured. Refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning. Some were sword in half. Doesn't sound like your best life now. Right? It is serious, but you can also have fun with me today, okay? Others were killed... By the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats. I haven't seen that trend. Normally trends kind of cycle. I haven't seen that one come back in yet. Destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world. The ESV says this world was not worthy of them. Wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. And then this little phrase, all these people earned a good reputation because of the because of their faith those who conquered those whose weakness was turned to strength those who look more like what our culture would say that's flourishing and those who look like hey man get me away from that life both of them hebrews 11 holds up as an example to us of a faithful fruitful flourishing life in God, And that's very, very difficult for me to get my head around. For Christians, as we look at Christ as our example, it's not just the good life as culture would define the good life. It's the way that all life was meant to be as God defines it. It's God saying, this is what Jesus' life should look like to flourish. That's where we ended off last week. Does that make sense? So, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how thriving and flourishing is answered very differently in Scripture than it is by our own culture. And we're going to look just point by point, very practically, at a few key areas. So the first major difference between cultural flourishing and biblical flourishing, and let me me just say as we do this that some of it looks very, very similar. It's extremely nuanced. I'm not preaching against physical health. I'm not preaching against money in the bank account. I'm not preaching against these many of the blessings which God pours onto us. I'm preaching about a priority of how they order in our lives, how they fit in our lives. And we'll get to some of that. But the first major difference is I've called it God's path and power. So the biblical view of flourishing biblical differs to all the others because it shows a pathway. We spoke about this loads last week. But God's word comes and says, here is a pathway to flourish. And if you just look at that, then you go, okay, so what's the difference between that and my Facebook guru? Because they also tell me, if you do this and this and this, you will flourish. What's the difference between that and Oprah? Or that or anyone else who claims to be a philosopher of this age or to, to have a path? Anyone who says... Follow this path and you will flourish. The, the key difference is that the biblical flourishing comes not just with a path to get there, but the power to walk that path. That's the key difference, is that we are empowered from something outside of ourselves in order to live the path. So why do most New Year's resolutions fail? Why do your New Year's resolutions fail? I'll tell you what mind you. Because the person on the 1st of January is the same as the person on the 31st of December. My New Year's resolutions fail because I bring myself into the new year with my weaknesses, with my lack of discipline, with my good intentions, and I do sit-ups for the first week. And then I decide I'm going back to my one-pack. Right? I bring myself, and that's the, that's the problem. My weakness, my stuff comes... With me, and what we need is not just a vision of flourishing, as beautiful as that is. We need not just the vision, but the means. How? I need the power to be able to flourish. There's a theologian called Pennington, and he writes this beautiful little sentence or two. It says Christianity provides not merely a set of values or a vision that we should pursue and which thereby promises flourishing. It provides the heart cure and renewal in our souls that enable us to actually pursue and experience flourishing. And he says, this is good news indeed. that makes sense? That's a beautiful quote. Those who would take biblical flourishing seriously know that it is a heart work. That needs to happen. It's not just a roadmap. It's not just a calendar change. It's not just sticking up as inspirational quotes around your house. It's not writing on your mirror with lipstick some inspiration or some reminder that's going to help you get to the flourishing life. Those things may help, but ultimately, we need a heart change. If you leave here this morning and you all fired up with good intentions of how you're going to change and what you're going to do, quite honestly, as a, my job as a preacher, I've failed. If you leave with just some inspiration bubbling in your heart. If you don't leave this morning crying out this, this beautiful psalm, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. And this is, this is the, one of the key texts in the Bible is Ezekiel 36 on this topic. And it's so beautiful because the context of Ezekiel is is the same as much of the Old Testament. It's a group of people who've been given explicit pathway. The Israelites, they've been told by Moses, and God wrote it down on the tablets, you remember this, if you've read read much of the Bible, then, then Joshua comes and he says, are you going to obey this? And they add to these laws, and there's an extremely clear pathway. But the entire story of the Old Testament is people's inability to walk in the pathway, because the 31st of December is the same person as the 1st of January. They know they want to do it. They say, yes, we will do it. Us and our children, we will follow after God. But they don't. And that's the story again and again of the Old Testament. So that's the context of this verse. And so God raises up prophets to begin to say to them, if you don't listen, this is what's going to happen. I've told you this already, but I'm gracious and I want to tell you again. And God's kind and He's patient. But eventually, the things that God says will happen to them, happen to them. Right? And now... In Ezekiel, Israel's in great trouble. And God sends another prophet to encourage them and to remind them that a day is coming where there's not just a path, but there's power to walk in that path. And listen to how God says it here. He says, I, it's a key little word. You'll see it many times in this word. It's in this verse, it's God's doing. I will sprinkle clean water on you. It's an Old Testament picture of purity. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. And now watch what happens, guys. Watch. This is this group that are just for hundreds of years already at this stage, unable to fulfill the call and the laws of God. And listen to what he says. I will put my spirit in you and move you. Who's going to move us? God himself will move us to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. The very thing that they are unable to do, God says, when I come, I'm going to reach into your chest. And I'm going to pull out that heart of stone. And I'm going to put in its place the heart of flesh. And I'm going to give you a new spirit, the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus says, there's one coming after me who will empower you. There's a Holy Spirit coming. And the Holy Spirit is going to enable you to walk in my ways. Think of Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. How many of us need joy this morning? How many of us are struggling with depression? Struggling with sadness? Struggling with these things. And the Bible comes and says God, through His Spirit, through a flesh heart, can give us these things. You can't go and find joy somewhere. You might be able to ratchet yourself up for a few weeks, a few years, a few days. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. We had our first um, dad's kids ministry evening this week. And there was a bunch of dads together In a room, and it doesn't take long to realize that one of the key things that fathers struggle with with little kids is patience. Patience. Just be big already. Just stop spilling your drink every. One of one of our one of our friends, who was telling us um, this week, I think, about a friend who has a chart of how many dinners they can have without their kids spilling drinks. And the chart basically just stays at zero. It's like it never really gets much beyond that, right? But as a father, you can feel hopeless as you lose your temper with your kids or you, you're angry. We, fathers in the room, you know this. Kids in the room, you know this from many of your own fathers, right? I can't just will patience in myself. Yes, there's a part that I bring to it, absolutely, but it's a flesh heart, you've got it with the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Guys, we have, to, we have to unlearn this kind of Christian culture that we grit our teeth and just somehow get there through our power and our energy and be better. I want to release you from that in Jesus' name. It's not what we biblically call to. Yes, we don't just carry on and live licentious lives as if we have no self-control. Of course, I get that. But the power, the fuel in the car comes from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So here's here's the big first point that we're making. Flourishing can only be achieved because we receive something from outside of ourselves. If you're going, this is what the culture says, go inside to find it. Right? Every Facebook thing you want to read. Go and find your true self. Who's your authentic self? Take time out to find your authentic self. Go inside. You know, every time I go inside, I get a bit scared. Truthfully, there's a lot of junk inside my heart. That's not the answer I need. I don't need someone to tell me to go inside and find myself. I need what the Bible says is look outside of yourself to the one who rescues sinners able to help themselves. That's what I need. And it's a huge, huge difference. Friends, let me ask you, what belief back to last week again, what belief are you holding on to here? Who's Who's you trying, were you trying to find your power? Inside? Outside? Alright. Let's talk number two. My glory versus God's glory. We're talking about the major difference between the way the Bible defines flourishing and the way that our culture defines flourishing flourishing. This is one of the most obvious differences. Cultural flourishing focuses almost exclusively on the glory of man, aka usually myself, right? That's what flourishing looks like. It's about me, it's about my, it's about what I need, it's what my life is going to look like. Look at what we, look at what we as, a, as a culture celebrate, and you'll see this very quickly. The, the, the self-made man or woman The great businessman who came from nothing. This is like, this is the greatest, this is the greatest thing that our culture holds up. I read an article recently which, which as a dad of five kids just absolutely shocked me. It was an article with Elon Musk's mom, right? Around how to raise great kids. This was what the article was, it was titled something like that. How to raise successful kids, I think it was called. Because she has Elon Musk and then I think it's like a doctor and a physician or someone else and there's like three kids and they're all like this this held up, right? I, I went and I looked a little bit in Elon Musk's life and he has children by, by four different women. He's just gone through his third divorce. He lives this hectic like he's proud of this like steeping on the floor culture where he's got no work life balance. And this is the this is the picture that we hold up in this kind of cultural view of flourishing. Like, oh I'd love to be like Elon Musk. I read a, a little bit about it yesterday. I've got to be careful when I'm prepping not to get distracted by these articles. But I read a little bit from his wife who said, like his, his very first wife, who said, I just want the Elon back before he made all his millions. So we had something. And then the millions just made him this, this horrible person. And I, I just wish he had never made them, was this article, right? And yet we go to Elon Musk's mom, and we say, hey, won't you teach us how to raise kids like him? And I'm not having a go at what I am. <laughs> I'm not deliberately having a go at Elon Musk. I haven't met him personally. Maybe he's a great person. I don't know. I'm having a go at the cultural lens that we hold up of flourishing and who gets the glory. It's all about fame or influence or, or this person who's done this wonderful supposed thing. And it flourishes, cultural flourishing focuses on man's glory. It elevates and lifts up men or lifts up women. Biblical flourishing leads us to direct, this is in contrast, all glory to God as the source of our flourishing. When So just think about If you like me, and I think many of you would be, when I go up on a mountain, that doesn't happen all that often, but when I do, and I look out over landscape, something in my heart cries out about a Creator. This morning in our prayer meeting under the trees, I just picked up these, I put them in my, my iPad case, these two little tiny little acorns, and when you just look at the detail of the creation on those things, and I'm from a farming background, so I know I'm probably a little more earthy than some people I don't know than some tiny people, but like just the the, the detail of that one little thing is so precious is so it would be like the most fine craft if you could try and create it, and God just scatters that everywhere just for fun, just like his glory on display and creation, every little blade of grass different, every tree different. I, I googled last week for some reason um, date trees Israel date trees like the cedars of Israel. And I thought that'd be like these pine trees. They look very similar. All these trees just vastly different. Like they don't even look like the same species. This is the Creator God that we worship. And so when we look at biblical flourishing, it doesn't elevate man. It elevates God. We look at how God is glorified. I love when Jesus is born and these angels appear in Luke chapter two, and it says suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel who'd been speaking to the shepherds, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those, flourishing to those on whom his favor rests. Or at the end of days when John, one of Jesus' disciples, prophesies in Revelation 4, and he prophesies about a time coming where the elders will fall down, and this is what they will say, You are worthy, O Lord, and god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being it's a remarkable study it's actually it can be quite uncomfortable because i won't go into that for now but when you study how much god glorifies himself in the bible it's a fascinating study just to see how much god expects glory, desires glory, calls for his glory, and how much God is glorified in Scripture. Why, why is that? Why is God demanding that we, in a sense, that we glorify him? Friends, it's very simple. It's because God made us so that when we glorify him, when Paul, when me, when I glorify God, and I'll make a choice to do that instead of glorifying me. Instead of standing around a bra and exaggerating what my life is and my achievements and how, like, you know, I had 50 cents in my account and then I became this rich person, or whatever it is that we're exaggerating or putting our glorifying lens on to the world, that instead of doing that in some subtle, hopefully not just like, you know, glory to Jesus, you know, just very Christian kind of way, but we actually learn how to bring glory to God in our everyday lives, something begins to happen in my heart. When I begin to learn to glorify God and declare Him Lord rather than me Lord. That's what we're doing in our songs. I love that last song, that being Enthroned. It's, I don't know why they sing so high. My goodness, I mean these guys, like it's like a prerequisite to be a Christian recording artist. You've got to be able to hit like I think it's F sharp in that song. It's ridiculously high, but it's, anyway, I got confused now where I was. <laughs> throwing my strength myself, of course. I love that song, being because it starts off with "We come to join the song sung long before our lives," to join with those who've gone before, and this this idea that's so much bigger than just me and my little cultural moment right now. There's being throned upon the praises of a thousand generations. You are worthy. Lord of all, and something of this glorying of God helps us to, to be sober minded around who we are in our place in eternity, in our place in the story. And God knows this is the key part that that's good for us. That, that glorifying Him leads to healthy, flourishing humans, us, our lives probably my favorite quote on this and it's become something of a prayer for me over the last probably year and a half since I read it. It's from a... you Just go to the second one, guys, on projection if you would. Um, It's Charles Spurgeon and it says, God, whatever is most for your glory, let that be my will as it is your will. It's already God's will that everything is most for his glory. I'm the break in the chain. I need to say, Lord... Whatever is most for your glory, let it be my will. Let it be my will. And That's become a prayer for me. All right, we need to move a little quicker here, but you, you with me so far? So we've, number one, we've spoken about the difference being between God's path and power, that we have an enabling power in flourishing biblically. Secondly, we've spoken about the difference between God's glory and my glory. And the next one's going to be a little uncomfortable, but it's, it's really helpful and really necessary We're going to speak about comfort versus obedience. We frame it for us like this. The cultural view of um, flourishing generally focuses on comfort, on ease, usually on some form of prosperity, material prosperity. Um, We call them the haves and the have-nots. And which one do you want to be? You want to be the haves, right? We speak about... um, those who have done well, so then by implication there's those who have done not well, right? And this is how our culture will define, very subtly, flourishing for us in terms of material possession. But, but more than just material possession, it focuses largely on immediate gratification, It focuses on the here and now. Cultural flourishing generally speaks about your best life now. Your authentic self now. The person you need to be now. It's this instant gratification. Whereas the Bible, in complete contrast to that, holds that out, holds the cultural view as a shallow and temporary measure and encourages us to look to the long term, not just the here and now. Matthew 5 is a great example of this. It's one of my favorite texts in the whole of the Bible. Four, five, and six are beautiful. But it's where Jesus is encouraging them to pray. And he says, you know, when you, when you pray, don't do it in front of everyone. You know, go to the temple and pray loudly and, and with fancy words. And like, oh, Lord, thank you this morning we are here, gathered as your children. And you, he says, you've got your reward in full. You bring glory to yourself. You're already glorified. You've already got your reward. He says, no, no, no. Do it so that only your father sees and then he'll reward you in heaven. It's eternal. It's not right now. You won't get right now gratification. No one will know you prayed that awesome best ever prayer. He says the same about fasting. And when you fast, don't go around as if everyone is like, you know, sure haven't eaten in days. Just just praying to the Lord. I can't really do it anymore like I used to. He says, don't do that. Do it in secret. He does the same about giving. Apparently there used to be some kind of tradition where they'd go and blow trumpets as they gave money to the poor. Look at me giving. Sounds a little bit like YouTube. Just saying. Right? How many clips? My kids are into this stuff. Mr. Beast. How many how many clips of like people giving away money as if like, oh, look at me being amazing, giving to this beggar. Actually, it's not at all. It's maybe they got, I don't know, I don't want to judge them, but it's pretty, pretty big glory that you're getting for yourself in that moment. Let me be extremely clear, and this is an important point to make. The blessed, flourishing life in the Bible is not against comfort. It's not against wealth. It's not against ruling and kingship and weakness being turned into strength. We don't have to live a life that pretends that none of these things are good or from God, right? It just always comes second to obedience, That's why I've spoken about comfort being the worldly cultural flourishing and obedience being the biblical response. So if I had to ask it to you like this, if I had to say, if wealth is okay, but God came to you and said, give it all away, and you went, ah, I can't do that. That's the problem. See, when you read the story of the rich young ruler, there's a fascinating little line. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. This young man approaches Jesus. It, says, it literally says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then Jesus does something very unique. Other people come and say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. And Jesus says, hey, foxes have holes, birds have nests. Like, don't follow me. It's hard. You don't need to follow me. This guy, Jesus actually gives a 13th disciple's call. Now, I know he wasn't not a 13th disciple, but he says exactly the same words that he says to his disciples when he calls them. He says, Leave something and come follow me. He says, Go sell all you have and come follow me. Because he first speaks about his righteousness, and this guy says, All these things I've done, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And Jesus says, One thing you lack sell everything you have and come follow me. And it says that young man went away sad because he couldn't do that, because his priority was revealed in that moment. And that's the thing that I want to pull out in this little point around flourishing. It's not about, I'm not smashing wealth, I'm not smashing these things. If you've got a good job and it pays well, praise God. Use it for God's purposes. Be generous. Bless people. Take people into your home. You've got a big home. Fill it up with people. It's wonderful. These are blessings of God. I'm not knocking those things. But what I'm saying is that they must be under. They must be in obedience. One of the um, sermons I did at the end of of last year, we we did a series on the love of the Father. And we were speaking about the love of the Father and how, at the end, I was speaking about how we respond or what are the biblical responses to the love of the Father. And it really shocked me when I started to look at Scripture that one of the primary things that God links to His love is obedience. If you love me, obey me. Because you love me, obey me. If you want to follow me, obey me. It's like constantly... There And I encourage you to go and get that sermon and listen to it. It was revelation for me. And Jesus, in in John chapter 15, this was the key text, is speaking to his disciples about how he loves them and how he's received God's love and how he wants to give it to them. And then he has this little line. He says, I've told you this, John 15, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And that was the startling part of that sermon for me, is that we're meant to have joy. He's trying to give us joy. And not just a little bit of joy, complete joy. He's trying to fill us up with joy through obedience. That's what he's trying to do. You can go and catch that online. Alright, so are you with me so far? We've done three. We're going to do number four. We've just got two to go. This one is very quick. Biblical flourishing for all is number four. This is one of the key, key differences between cultural flourishing... And biblical flourishing. Biblical, I mean cultural flourishing equals the few. If you're in poverty, which is the vast majority of our world, of our seven or eight, eight billion yet, if you're in poverty, well, sorry for you. Cultural flourishing, you have to try and find something else. It's not really for you. Right? If you're a woman in some parts of the world education, flourishing those kind of things it's not for you it's for the few it's a few who can attain travelling the world or doing this or whatever it might look like biblical flourishing stands in complete contrast and God's word is different from all these views because it's clearly made available to everyone I asked you last week, who's this for? who's this flourishing for? Who can have it? Who has access to it? What are the criteria for being qualified to receive this flourishing? And the answer is, Jesus says, Are you weary? Are you burdened? Are you lost? Do you not know how to do this? And he says, come. Come to me. Come to me and I will give you life. And I will give you life to the full. I will give you life in abundance. Galatians says it like this. So in Christ Jesus... You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Now we don't get that. That's like the greatest divide you could imagine if you go and look culturally at those two groups. So he's saying there's neither. In our today's language, this would be Jew or Nazi, in terms of like the the distance between these two groups. He's saying those groups have been brought together in Christ. They won. That's what Ephesians says. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And this is good news. This is good news. Because if we hold up the lens of cultural flourishing, then the rich and the poor get a very different lot in life. The educated versus the illiterate get a very different kind of flourishing. Children, adults, men, women, Indian slums, New York high rise, wherever you want to go. This is the good news of the gospel that there is no elite group. It's us. Paul says, Who of you were great here on earth? Who of you were the learned? Who of you were the respected? And yet we are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. Fifth and lastly, I'm going to end, all the weeks I preach, I'm going to end on this point. Christ, an example of flourishing. There are so many, it's like, if Christ is the diamond, we're just going to look at all the different facets of how he flourished, but in the most surprising, unconventional, uncultural ways. So let us, as we finish together, and we're going to take communion in a minute, but let us consider the life and death of Jesus. Let me ask you, what kind of man was Jesus? Like when Jesus walked on the earth, what like actually, what kind of man was he? Would culture have considered Jesus a, a flourisher? Would culture have put Jesus... Would Jesus have got a mention in Forbes magazine? Would Jesus ever have made the front cover? He has now, but back then, in his day, would he ever have made the cover of the Time magazine? Did Jesus flourish? Well, Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy about the coming Christ, says that Jesus wasn't even good-looking. Literally, what it says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance, that we should desire him. With these beautiful pictures of Jesus in stained glass, flowing hair, great chiseled face, muscly chest. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. There was nothing attractive about him. No one saw him and went like, I want to follow that man. He was despised and rejected by mankind. The man of suffering. And familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. (laughs) This is the Bible. You heard the expression, he has a face for radio. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. What kind of man was Jesus? Would the culture have thought that he flourished? Was he one of the popular kids? What about wealth? He wasn't good looking, he wasn't all that popular, but was he wealthy? Well, Jesus lived his whole life in near poverty. There's little clues through the Bible. Do you know that when Jesus was born, his parents sacrificed a dove? A dove was, if you go back and look in Leviticus, was the sacrifice for the poorest of the poor in community. When people had a child, they would bring a sacrifice. If you're wealthy You'd bring a sheep or you'd bring something else, bigger thing. If you were really poor and you couldn't afford that, you'd go and catch a dove in the wild. And you'd bring the dove and that would be your offering. And that's the family that Jesus was in. And they offered a dove for Jesus. When you look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, he's a poor wanderer. He goes from home to home to home to home. He has mostly women actually supporting him. It looks like throughout the New Testament, there's incredible women of faith who actually fund most of the gospel. Even with Paul's journeys and things, it's incredible that most of the money that is mentioned seems to come from women. In a time when economically, they were completely deprived. I mean, that's another, another thought you can just park and think about later on. A Pharisee comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, well... Foxes have dens and birds have nests. I've already quoted this, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I don't even have, I'm not even renting a, a place, let alone in Stellenbosch. Right? Jesus is, my point is that Jesus is not scoring well on the cultural scoreboard. He's not doing great. And then you throw in Jesus' own speech and accusing all the, all the influential people publicly following in the footsteps of John the Baptist who's beheaded for accusing Herod of marrying his, his brother's wife, Herodias. That's why John the Baptist was killed. These guys are speaking out against influential people. And then we see Jesus going into the temple and beating on people. <laughs> Jesus must have been a PR nightmare. Like, how do you, how do you equate this with the flourishing life? And yet Jesus is the most wonderful biblical example of true flourishing. Jesus is the picture of the whole human being. Jesus is we need to be a little bit more careful, Christians. I hear a lot of Christians saying, I want to I want to be like Jesus. We say that quite clippily. I want to follow Jesus. I want to, I want to model my life on Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. Well, which Jesus are you thinking about? I I'm, I'm, think you're thinking about Jesus in Revelation. Raised from the dead, glorious, seated at the right hand of the Father, people bowing down and worshipping Him. I think we're comfortable wanting to be that Jesus. But are you comfortable with being the ugly, poor, beating on people Jesus? I'm not suggesting you do that. It's for the record. Christ was the most whole the most complete the most admirable person ever to live. The definition I gave a flourishing last week was fulfilling potential. A seed it's the best metaphor I can think of. A seed fulfills its potential when it becomes a tree. Healthy fruitful branches full of, of birds and fruit and animals rest in its shade some of the Psalms say. That's Flourishing, that our lives would be a seed that God uses to flourish. And Jesus is the most complete picture of that fulfilled potential. Jesus didn't just exemplify one or two aspects of God. He exemplified all of God. He turns to his disciples and says, Don't you understand? If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. This is Jesus' claim. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. And what Jesus did, this unlikely, culturally, non-flourishing man, biblically, it resonates thousands of years later. Millions of people. Billions, actually. Claim Jesus as their Lord. Remember what I started off by saying is that we don't need to look inside, we look to the rescue, we look to the to the outside. I hope this helps us. I hope as we look at Jesus in particular, if you forget the other things I say, don't forget. Jesus is the most wonderful example of countercultural. Flourishing in every single aspect that you can imagine. Friends, I asked you in the beginning, how do we as Christ followers navigate the clash of cultural visions regarding what it truly means to flourish? How do you choose? Who's, whose path will you accept? Where are you gonna walk? The Bible holds up true flourishes flourishing and says it's Jesus. Follow Jesus, look at Jesus, this countercultural. Life And I ask you today, will you accept it? It's hard, or will you reject it? Last week, I'm going to end off in the same way. I asked you to spend some time in the week reflecting and writing down. I'm encouraging you to write it down because there's something about that step which makes it a little more deliberate. Writing down what do you think will make you flourish. What are your beliefs? What beliefs do you hold about flourishing? I asked you to think, what are you pursuing that you believe will lead to the good life? And I was surprised in my own heart as I did that this week. And I journaled what I think will lead to the flourishing life. And it actually led me to a place where in some of them I'm just going like, God forgive me. I don't need another sermon or anything to realize that this is not biblical flourishing. Let me pray for us. Father, I've spoken a bunch about different things, we've looked at different scriptures in your word, trying to encourage trying to exhort trying to challenge trying to bring all these things forward to our minds and Lord I ask that by the power of your spirit you would reach deep into our hearts you know what every person here is going through you know what we need you know what our thought life is you know what our belief system is, much better than we know it ourselves and we need change Every one of us. Those of us who follow you, those who don't follow you, we need change. And we ask you that by your power, you would do that change. We thank you that we don't follow a path in some religious way, in our own strength, gritting our teeth, trying harder to be a better person, but that actually we have help. Help is on the way. Help is here. helpers among us. We have a counsellor. We have an enabler. We have a a spirit that gives us fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness. Jesus, as we look at you, the ultimate example of flourishing, we see so many contradictions to what our minds hold up as flourishing. And we ask you that you would inch us year by year, day by day, month by month, year by year, Inch us closer and closer and closer until we too can say, Lord, whatever is most for your glory, let it be my will as it is your will. In Jesus' name.